John chapter 15 in your Bibles, if you are remaining in here. John chapter 15. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided, you'll find today's text on page 571. John chapter 15. Uh, the chapter begins on page 570, but our consideration this morning will begin in verse 18, which comes on page 571. I'd like for us this morning to read this text of Scripture. We'll read all the way down through chapter 16, verse 4, and then we'll ask for God's help as we consider His Word. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Hear the Word of the Lord. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works uh, which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming, and whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things will, uh, they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I do not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Father, we do thank you for the moments that we have together to spend in your word, and we pray that it would be fruitful, that our understanding might be opened, that our wills might be changed, that the Holy Spirit would preach to us in these hours, in this moment, in these moments we have together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tonight is the Super Bowl, kind of a big deal. Uh, hopefully, you're going to enjoy some fellowship, maybe, during that time. Some of you will probably be here tonight watching the Super Bowl uh, on the TV, and we'll all be stuffing our faces with bad forest delicacies. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a big deal in America, isn't it? Uh, and probably the biggest deal of the Super Bowl is, of course, the commercials. This year during the Super Bowl, there will be two ads about Jesus. I don't know if you've heard this or not. There are actually two commercials that are playing that are presenting Jesus. This is part of a marketing campaign that dates back a couple years called He Gets Us. It's a campaign that is intended in their own words to increase the respect and the relevance of Jesus. The ads are estimated to cost around $20 million, 
perhaps the biggest faith-based campaign in the history of the world. I really wish they had asked me, we're going to spend $20 million on evangelism. Uh, how do you think we should spend it? But they didn't ask me, so, so they spent it on Super Bowl ads. The ads have been described by various people as, uh, with, with different modifiers such as edgy, modern, fresh. Uh, they key into the relatability of Jesus. Jesus had experiences like us. He was a human. He had experiences like us. Now, I think there probably is much to be commended, particularly in the motive, the intent to bring attention to the person of Jesus Christ before this large of an audience. And of course, it is true that Jesus was fully human. He did share in our human condition. He does understand us, or in the colloquial of the age, He gets us. But beyond that, we believe that the message that needs to be proclaimed is that we are sinners. And Jesus provides forgiveness and redeems. So my question is, why do we get the idea that sin and redemption is something that we kind of have to save for later? That, That we have to get people to like Jesus first and then... We stick on that footnote, oh yes, and by the way, He can save you from your sins. In the text that we see today, Jesus reminds us that many who were confronted with the reality of who He was, those who understood His claims, hated Him. They despised Him because they saw who He was. Christ, in this context, has been speaking about not letting your hearts be troubled, right? He is he's giving this final discourse to the disciples. He is, he is telling them that He is no longer going to be with them, and He is saying, but, but don't worry, don't let your hearts be troubled. And He is keying in on the benefits of abiding in Him. Even when He is no longer physically present, they must abide in Him like a, vine, like a, a branch depends on the vine. He also speaks about the fact that those branches will love fellow branches. They will love one another. And then he suddenly turns to the matter of trials and the world's hatred in this section this morning. Now, it may surprise you. I mean, he's talking about don't let your heart be troubled. He's talking about you can take comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit is coming. And then he turns to trials and rejection and hatred, that may surprise you until you recognize the fact that there's actually comfort found in this announcement of forthcoming difficulty. And so this morning we learn that you and I can be comforted in the face of persecution. You and I can be comforted in the face of persecution. Now, how does that work? How does the text remind us that we can take comfort even though we are going through rejection, hatred, difficulty? Well, we see it in a couple ways. First of all, we see that Christ's followers can be comforted in persecution when they know what to expect. Do you realize that the pronouncement that Jesus is making actually is comforting to them? 
because it is in that that they recognize he is still in control. So he says in verse 18, this is how he begins the discourse, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The form in the original language that is used here in verse 18 implies certainty. You will be hated. Now, let's clarify for a moment. He's talking about the world, and often the scriptures, and Jesus in this context, is using the world to describe an overall system. All right? There is, there is on the part of, of that world system, the, the value system, the, the milieu of the age, the culture around you as a unit hates me. This is not to say that every believer will hate you personally, as in personal animus, but that there is a systemic sense in which the world opposes Christ and then by implication his followers, those who are loyal to him. And so why is it that the world system hates Christ and his followers? Well, it can be expected because we have certain loyalties. He says that to us in verse 19. Persecution can be expected because of your loyalty. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, right? If, if you had the same loyalties, the same priorities, the same values as the world system, then that, it would make sense that they would love you, but you don't. You are oriented toward a completely different value system. This is what we would call a Christian world view or a biblical world view. We look at the world a completely different way. Our loyalties are different. Everything that we do is because we believe that Jesus is Lord. All right? That, that, and that title means that he is the ruler, he is the king, he has the right to rule over all dominions and every aspect of our life. Why else would we have a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that is a chronicle of the early Christians, many of whom were willing to go to the stake and be burned alive, some of whom were, be, were, were cut in half, some whose skin was filleted off of them because of their loyalty to Christ. Why would a person do that? Why would a person endure that kind of persecution? Because he has the right to rule. That's the only reason. And so we have a loyalty to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself, and Jesus reminds his disciples because they are about to be right in the face of this. They are going to face the very real prospect of persecution and even death. Do you recall that 11 of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death? John was the only exception. Who He was still exiled to the Isle of Patmos for several years and could have easily died there were it not for the fact that God had a different plan. Why? Because they had a different loyalty. You're not of the world, he says. In fact, I chose you out of the world. You, you are a, a separate 
group, and so because of that, the world hates you. He gives us another reason why persecution is to be expected, and that's because of our different master. We alluded to this already, but our master is, has modeled for us. Jesus himself has modeled for us. Remember the word that I said to you, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus is about to face torture and death on a Roman cross. And so it follows logically that if they hated him, they despised him, they persecuted him, they even killed him, why should you, my followers, Christ says, expect anything different? In fact, Paul speaks in terms of us entering into the sufferings of Christ. And that when we suffer because of Christ, it is cause for rejoicing, as we read in our call to worship this morning. It is cause for rejoicing because we now enter into the sufferings of Christ. Now, sometimes this persecution is nonviolent. This would be the coercion and the financial fines for refusing to affirm an anti-God agenda. This would be retribution in the workplace for not complying with unbiblical demands. This would be the ostracization of neighbors, amongst neighbors, because of the loyalty to the things of God. This would be vandalism or plundering of one's property because of a stand for biblical ethics. But there are other times that it could be violent. And we rejoice in the fact that we have not faced extensive violent persecution in our country, but we know, both historically and biblically, that that is a very real possibility. In fact, the word that is used here that Jesus describes as persecution, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, has the sense of being chased like a wild beast, being hunted. And so we know that the prospect of physical, violent persecution is very real amongst the followers of Christ. And so verse 21 says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus is teaching them that that the very exposure to the person of Christ is a dividing line. The accurate presentation of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done is a fork in the road. And it and it ca- it breaks people into two categories. And those who are loyal to Christ will find themselves in a very very different place than those who reject him. On the one hand, there will be those who will see him as Lord, will acknowledge him as the authority, and will live life accordingly. On the other hand, will be those who despise, who hate Christ and all he stands for. This is the world system. This is the pervasive spirit of our age. 
We also see finally, and this kind of crystallizes all of it in verse 23 through 25, that persecution can be expected because of the gospel. You see, it is not just that there was a man who lived and died. That is the key dividing line. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. He who hates me uh, hates my father also, he says in verse 23. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they will have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. A nice Jesus who performed some moral teaching, who went about doing good works, offends no one. But a Jesus, according to the New Testament, who is God in the flesh, that is the offensive message. A Jesus who comes to to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us and give us right relationship with God, that is a Jesus who, who divides, who separates. And so then it should come as no surprise to us. And this is essentially what Jesus says at the end of this little section. Don't forget that this is going to happen. Verse 16, or chapter 16, rather, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. The time is coming, and I'm giving you this as a warning so that you don't trip up. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers a service to God. So, so it is not enough that someone is sincere. Do you recognize that someone can fight against God? that they can resist Jesus Christ and even think that they are doing it for the right reasons. Those who do this, he says, will think that they are offering service to God. They will do it in the name of God. We are increasingly coming to the point in our land where so-called churches, those who, who profess, who purport to be speaking on behalf of God, call biblical Christians to back away from their biblical commitments. Just because someone says they are working for God does not mean that they are. He says, I've told you these things so that when the time comes, you'll remember that I told you of them. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking in the specific context of his disciples, but we know from what the disciples went on and taught others, and by obvious implication, this applies to us too. We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the things of God, is increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity, is increasingly hostile to an ethic that is taught in Scripture, and is increasingly hostile to a Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And this, my friends, should come as no surprise to us. In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed, you may recall, at the end of World War II in 1945, he was executed in a German concentration camp, he wrote in his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, that suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckons suffering amongst the marks of the true church. 
Discipleship must be an allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Why are we surprised when a world opposes us? The New Testament is replete with warnings that this is the norm. 2 Timothy, just give you a few examples, 2 Timothy 3, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been given, has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 1 Thessalonians, that none of you should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning fiery trials, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. I think I misspoke earlier. I think I said Paul wrote that. It's Peter. Um, I don't know if you caught that. And when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And so we know that this is the, this is the normal New Testament expectation. Now, we have been richly blessed in the history of this country that, that, that this suffering that we, we see presented in Scripture has been, has been at bay to a certain extent. But that's the exception, not the rule. And so because of our historical myopic view, we tend to think that's normal. And scripturally speaking, it's not. And so when we do see persecution come, we ought not be surprised by it. But beyond that, Christ followers can be comforted in persecution because they know their resources. I was struck by the words of the hymn that we sang a few minutes ago, It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control. And then what does he articulate? Well, this is the blessed assurance that it's all going to work out in the end. Or that this suffering won't be long. That's actually not what he cites. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It's the gospel that gives us hope. The reality is no matter how bad your life is, no matter how difficult things get, no matter how much you are persecuted even for the cause of Christ, it pales in comparison to the reality that Christ has saved our soul. Christ regarded our helpless estate. And if, and if Christ did nothing for us, but saved us, he's done, en- he's done enough. And when we participate in his sufferings, that's a badge of honor. That's a glorious participation that we participate in the sufferings of Christ. And so followers of Christ can be comforted because they know that they have Resources Again, think about the context of John 15 and 16, right? It is dependence. It is like a vine on the branch. So don't miss the connection. A true follower, being a true follower, being, being a branch on the vine involves persecution. And what does persecution require? Dependence. Notice verse 26. 
when the Helper has come, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. This, this, in this whole context, Jesus is weaving in the reality that he is sending the Spirit. And it is the Spirit that gives us strength as we depend on Jesus Christ to comfort us in times of adversity. This pushes us back to our source, the vine. And we are but the branches. And when we are persecuted for the cause of Christ, we are most aware of that need. So those are our resources. It's the Spirit. It's the Word. Actually, verse 26, I think, is a nod to the coming New Testament, that these men who are standing before Christ will pen. The Holy Spirit spoke through them. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit who speaks through the Word gives us the strength that we need to endure the temptation that is associated with difficulty, persecution. So what do we do? How do we react in the face of persecution? Well, we can take comfort when we know how to respond. We see this in verse 27. Now, when we, when we face the reality of persecution, right? So here we are, America, things have been kind of cruising along for a couple hundred years. Uh, we call ourselves a Christian nation, whatever that means. And so, yeah, we're, we're good. We don't have to worry about that persecution stuff. And now what we're starting to see is rumblings in our culture where increasingly uh, we are facing persecution. So there's a couple wrong reactions that we might be tempted to. One would be denial. One would be, that will never happen here. That's, it's not going to be that. Those are just a few isolated events. My friend, if you want to be disabused of that notion, spend some time reading about what is taking place in our country in respect to religious liberty. Read about a, a, a cake shop owner in Colorado that the, the government in Colorado is going after now for the second time trying to coerce him to support a message that is unbiblical. Read about people who have been let go from their jobs because they, refer, because they refuse to, to succumb to um, an unbiblical um, sexual ethic, to affirm an unbiblical sexual ethic. Read about people who have lost their tenure at colleges because they will not enthusiastically support an unbiblical agenda. I mean, this is taking place at an increasing rate in our country. Now, thus far, we have been largely um, saved from a physical um, abuse, uh, violent persecution, but it is, it is fast. The, the storm clouds are fast brewing. And the naivety that, well, this, this just won't happen here is not helpful. In fact, why would it not happen here? Why would it not happen in our day? I mean, biblically, we actually have assurance that, that that's the norm that Christ and his followers are hated. And so, as I read Scripture, I would say, I kind of expect that. I mean, this, this reprieve that we've had in, in this country for, for, you know, a couple hundred years, wonderful. I, I praise God for it. I'm not... 
upset by the fact that we've been able to operate without extensive persecution, but I don't expect it. And so naivety, uh, denial would be one wrong response. The other wrong response, I think, would be that of just shock, dismay, that this is actually happening. And American Christians in our day respond in a way that I think would be puzzling for centuries of Christian forebearers. It would have been probably puzzling to the disciples the way we sometimes react. The response that many have is to prioritize changing the system. Christ made it clear that the world system will hate him. But many, many American believers think that, oh, what we got to do is we got to change the circumstances. We got to fight back against persecution. They will fight to eliminate the persecution itself. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not looking to accelerate persecution. In as much as we have opportunity, we can take advantage of our political system. We can take advantage of our judicial system to, relu- to reduce or eliminate persecution. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's be clear. Nowhere in Scripture is the church given the mission to reduce persecution. The only possible exception that I can think to that is to pray that we live a quiet and peaceable life. All right, so I'm going to kind of repeat that in case it didn't all sink in, all right? I am not looking for persecution to accelerate. As we have opportunity, because we have been gifted it as a privilege of living in this country, we can take advantage of the judicial and legislative system to reduce persecution. Not wrong. However, let's be clear. It is not the mission of the church to reform society so that we don't receive persecution. Now, that that fighting back against persecution, it makes for great talking points for one political side to gin up their base with fear. But it's not taught in Scripture. It's not taught in Scripture that a Christian or the church has a responsibility to preserve a certain respect for the things of Christ in our culture. What is our responsibility? What does, he he says to his apostles, this is coming. Disciples, here is how you respond. Verse 27, you will bear witness. What is our response in the face of persecution? It is to be a faithful witness. And so I would ask us this morning, is that how we think about all of this context? That we respond with faithfulness. Now, faithfulness means several things, right? Being a witness, to a certain extent, involves a certain life. And so it is not enough for us to simply say we should live the ethic of Christ but it is, we are called upon to do it. We are called on to live it out day by day. We're told in Scripture that if we do suffer persecution, let it not be because we are, and then the list 
right? Let it not be because we're not ethical. We're not doing what is right. I mean, some people will, will be quick to say, well, I'm suffering persecution, and what they're actually suffering is because they haven't been what they ought to be. Let's be careful to make sure that we are, we are faithful to the things of Christ, that we are displaying the Christ-like life before others. But it also calls upon us to, to verbally bear witness, to share the gospel, to give to others the reason for the hope that lies within us, to display that hope with our life, and then to testify to that hope with our lips. And so this morning, how do you and I face the challenges that are associated with following Christ? Maybe it's something as simple as, you know, you're not accepted in your neighborhood because of your known allegiance to Christ. Maybe it's a situation where there are certain festivities that you cannot participate in with your coworkers because you are eager to follow after Christ. Maybe it's even that your workplace is calling upon you to do something that you cannot in good conscience countenance. How will we respond? Will we respond with grace and kindness and love that also includes firmness and boldness and clarity? Will we balance our responsibility to our fellow neighbor while also loving not only our neighbor but loving God? When we do face persecution, we can take comfort. We can take comfort because we know what to expect. It it will come. We can take comfort because we know our resources, the Spirit and the Word, strengthen us as we depend on Christ. And this morning, you and I can take comfort because we know that our response is that of testimony, witness for Christ. Christ's followers can be comforted in the face of persecution. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you give, that you gave these men who were standing here listening to the words of Jesus in person on the day in which he spoke, and themselves demonstrated a testimony, even in the face of death. Lord, we look at ourselves, we look at our own hearts, we look at our weakness and our temptation to yield, and we, we wonder... Will we be faithful when the time comes for us to face that difficulty, that challenge, that, that cross word, maybe even that direct persecution?